Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. In this week's episode, your Harry Potter friends are hopping on their safe broomsticks and riding into lessons on how to conjure Patronuses. Eric's not here this week, but who is here is our social media manager, Chloe. Welcome back, Yay! Chloe. Hi, y'all. I know you replaced one blonde with another. <laughs> Eric's a fake blonde, though. That's not authentic blonde. Oh, wait, are you? Oh. I mean, I was born I was born a blonde. but our, So was I. You know, like, Yeah, like you. My hair is probably like light brown now, but yeah. who knows? Didn't we also bring in a Slytherin? Is that right? Do I have that? Yes. Oh, so it's, Chloe's a Slytherin, absolutely. right? Absolutely. I'm a Slytherin. It's two and two. It's an even split. Oh, this is great. Let's be real, though. Both you and Laura have Slytherin tendencies. Oh, absolutely. for sure. <laughs> I said I was a hat stall. But you're also wearing Luna Lovegood glasses today. No, I always. On your forehead. I always like dress a little on theme. I thought it'd be cute. It I like cute. it. I like it. Speaking of Luna Lovegood. A major Harry Potter anniversary is upon us. This Wednesday, June 21st, is the 20th anniversary of the Order of the Phoenix book being published. This is my favorite book. I went to a book release party. We're going to, I actually still have a box from the midnight release. I think we'll post it on social media on uh, either midnight release eve or release day. Because I'm very excited and very proud of myself that I've held on to these midnight release boxes for so long. Um, But yeah, I went to a midnight release party. Laura, I think you did, did. right? Did you go to? Yeah. Yeah. Micah, did you? No. Okay. (laughs) We just talked about this on a bonus muggle cast recently. I can't keep track, but were you? Okay, you hadn't discovered Harry Potter at that point. No, I wasn't even part of the conversation yet. Wow. Wow. How old were you, Chloe? Because you're pretty young. I was four. Oh, oh, God. My first and only midnight release party was the seventh, and I was quite young. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how old were you? You were seven. Uh, or eight. Eight, eight. eight or nine, yeah. I can only hope that my nephews, uh, the oldest being five years old right now, is um, going to a midnight release party in three years from now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I've told this story to the patrons before, but I like walked there myself and walked back home myself. Oh, that's dedication. Seems unsafe, but okay. Very young child. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, um, the reason we bring this up here is we recorded a lengthy bonus muggle cast that will be available exclusively on our Patreon this week. And in it, we discuss the anniversary of Order of the Phoenix. Eric was there with us because we recorded it last week. And we look at the most impactful elements of this book, actually. So it was a great discussion. Check that out again exclusively on Patreon this week. We have seven day free trials now available on Patreon. So sign up this week at patreon.com slash mugglecast and you can enjoy this and many more bonus mugglecast installments for free for a week. We also, by the way, have an annual subscription on our Patreon, and that lets you save a little money, actually, if you pledge for a year up front. It's like paying in advance for car insurance, but we're way more fun. (laughs) So check that out. We couldn't do this without you. Thanks, everybody who does support us. I do want to say I'm really jealous that you went to all of those midnight book releases, just like most people in my generation, especially those that are like the in-betweeners. Um, yeah, you know, I, I would kill to be there. And MuggleCast has allowed me to like sort of almost be a part of it without having been there. But yeah, I mean, Aww. I'm jealous and I'm sure plenty of listeners are too. 
Well, to that point, actually, I think to capture that energy, listeners could potentially go back to our episode after Deathly Hallows, the book was published, Laura, Jamie, Eric, and I, and Kevin. Kevin. Yeah, we were all in a hotel room reviewing the book right after staying up all night to read it. So I think that kind of captures that energy that you're looking for, Chloe. Well, not only that, I would say the episode before when you were at Waterstones because you recorded that, like that actually Mm -hmm. gives you a sense of what the energy was like inside of a bookstore. I know you almost what, like were responsible for the bookstore collapsing with all of the- uh... Yeah, we we caused some mild property damage. Um... (laughs) We didn't get a bill though, so who cares? Waterstones Piccadilly still has the cracks in the ceiling from- yeah. 2007. And then even before that, episode 99 was live from Philadelphia. Were you at that one, Micah? I know yeah. Emerson and Ben. Yeah, okay. Enlightening. So, so, yeah, Enlightening was a Harry Potter conference. One of the best acoustic venues, I think you said, that we've ever been to. Is that right? <laughs> it was super cool. It was like a cathedral. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful inside. So that one captures the pre-release energy too, I think. Is it fair to say, I mean, I I don't know what the numbers are, but episode 100 and 101 are like two of our most downloaded episodes ever. Oh, yeah. I think um, episode 101, which was our Deathly Hallows release, that got over half a million downloads, like very quickly. And remember, that's when podcasting really hadn't even blown up yet. So for it to get half a million downloads in the very early days of podcasting was pretty crazy. I mean, if we did that, you know, in the modern day podcasting world, probably could have gotten a million, if not more. If we had better help back then, we (laughs) we wouldn't be doing this anymore. (laughs) We'd be retired on yachts. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's return to present day here we are discussing prisoner of azkaban chapter 12 the patronus and we'll start with our seven word summary and we're putting the pressure on chloe sorry girl (laughs) such a rude thing to do to a guest i I feel like once you've done this a few times andrew's like well now i'm gonna bully you so (laughs) also i was first last time too just putting that out there all right play the music yeah (laughs) lupin Teaches Harry how to fight Dementors. Perfect. I think we finally figured this out. Yeah. We did have a rough go of it for a stretch. Yeah. Maybe it was just the season. You know, here in summer, we're loosey goosey. We're like, no stress, no worries. Yeah. And having Jason on last week helped with I love him. Yeah. He was so sweet. We're going to break this chapter into two halves. The Patronus, the Dementors, and then the second half is going to be Harry getting his firebolt back and what's going on with Oliver Wood and why he cares about um, getting Harry back on the field more than Harry's safety, which is funny to me. So we'll start with the Patronus lessons. Lupin decides to use a Bogart that'll turn into a Dementor for their first lesson on conjuring a Patronus. And he finds a Bogart in Filch's filing cabinet. He said he searched high and low, low. He combed the castle, I believe were his exact words. And I'm wondering how Filch and other faculty feel about Lupin searching their personal spaces for a Bogart. Does that seem appropriate to anybody? 
my first question is where did the other bogger go i guess just moved on from earlier in the semester or the oh, prior good, semester good point. Yeah. but i think it demonstrates a high level of commitment on lupin's part to follow through on his promise to harry and he's a defense against the dark arts professor he should easily be able to locate a bogger somewhere in the uh in the school i know he doesn't have the eye like mad eye I don't know. I, I feel like I would be annoyed if, if I walk into my own office and Lupin's looking around for a Boggart. I don't yeah. even know if I'd believe him. Maybe Lupin <laughs> just walked around casting Revelio around the castle oh. until he got a Boggart and then he went and knocked on Filch's door. It's like, hey, bro. Like, yeah, I feel like he probably asked for the majority of the teachers to look through their you know, their offices, their classrooms, etc. But I also, when we were reading this, Lupin is a marauder and Filch started at Hogwarts, like while James, Remus, Sirius, and Peter were there. So he's a hundred percent been in Filch's office before. And we like almost that's confirmed because the Marauder's map is originally found in Filch's office and his filing cabinets. Like, I don't think Lupin would have any issue snooping around Filch's office. I don't know if he would ask even Filch for permission, whether or not that's okay is, uh, you know, a different debate. But I think that with Filch, there's like a different level of like, Filch got him in trouble all the time as he when he was a kid. And I don't know if he necessarily respects Filch's like opinions on children and punishment. So I don't know if he'd have as much issue snooping around Filch's things. How do we know that Filch didn't report something weird in his filing cabinet? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was wondering that. You know, looking at a different perspective. Yeah, I was thinking maybe Filch had an encounter with the Bogart, and obviously he's not able to get rid of it. And maybe he asked Dumbledore or someone else on the faculty to help him do it. And Lupin was like, oh, snap, I need that. (laughs) So he came and did it. Yeah. It's also so sad to think about Filch, like, you know, obviously not having any magical ability and coming across a Boggart, his worst fear, um, and not being able to do anything himself. Like, the more we read, like, the more we deep dive into Filch, the more I'm like, why is he there? Like, leave, please. I'm telling you. I, I mean, I've established myself as a Filch apologist on this show. I think there's a lot of sympathy that we can have for his character. And there would be so much in terms of story and world building to expand on, you know, maybe in a TV show um, about (laughs) the place that squibs have in the wizarding world and how messed up it is. But to that point, Chloe, I wanted to ask y'all, what do you think Filch's bog art would be? Happy children, happy (laughs) school kids (laughs) enjoying their time at Hogwarts. Normal punishments. Sees it every day. (laughs) Yeah. We've spoken before about how Filch probably wishes he was a wizard. So I wonder, this is going to get dark, but I wonder if the Boggart would be himself as he is currently because he wants to be a wizard but he isn't. Whoa. So like Squib Filch. That's so deep. I wonder how many people see their worst fear and it's themselves. Yeah. Wow. 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 That is dark. Sorry. I just killed the mood. Sorry, everybody. I was also (laughs) thinking it could be some manifestation of him being exposed 
for being a squib because we see that in Chamber of Secrets in particular when he thinks that Harry targeted him because he's a squib. Uh, you can see how he just kind of unravels. It's clearly something he holds deep insecurity about. I mean, he did the whole quick spell program too. Um, so I think that idea of being exposed as not having magic might be it. My mind went also to the dark place, Andrew, that you were talking about, maybe even when he was younger as a as a kid and trying to learn magic, but being unable to. I think it's probably a combination of all the things that we're talking about, though I do really like what Into the Wicked Wood said on Discord. Peeves following him everywhere for the rest of his life. It's so true. <laughs> I like that. Lightens the mood. <laughs> so I had another question, speaking of the Boggart. Why is it that a Boggart Dementor has the same effect on Harry as a real Dementor? Because it's it's not a real Dementor, and yet it has very similar effects I'm going to answer my own question, but I, I want to hear what everybody thinks. It speaks to how authentic a Bogart's transformation can be, which is some interesting canon. But it probably couldn't suck a soul out, right? It's got to have limits. It can't be a full-blown clone and have the same exact abilities. Um, but it could have most of the other effects, like maybe the room darkening and cooling and making it feel like it's cold and it's certainly triggering the people in the room because they're convinced that it is real. That's honestly my read too, Andrew, the idea that it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, it looks like a Dementor, acts like a Dementor, causes the same environmental shifts. Quacks like a Dementor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody do AI art of like a Dementor duck. But... <laughs> Harry's, you know, Harry's fight or flight response is going to kick into gear when he sees this because it, it's not discernible from a real Dementor, apart from the fact that it probably can't do the Dementor's kiss. So I think that it's it's probably uh, cyclical. Harry's fear is feeding into it. I think there's also the element we hear in the books a lot. You know, Harry is affected by the Dementors much more than other folks because he's gone through much more than other folks. And I wonder if, even though the Boggart isn't a real Dementor, if some of that is still true. Like, you know, Harry obviously has been through more than his 13-year-old peers. And the Boggart, even if it's, you know, not as strong as a replica of the Dementor, can probably still tap into that. So I think that, you know, a Dementor Bogart on someone that has less trauma might not be able to do as much. Um, I think it's a combination of those things. And mm -hmm. also Harry's really triggered here. And like, this is just such an emotional response to a trigger that happens in real life, too. It's a great point. I see a lot being raised in the Discord about how much of it could be Harry himself allowing this to happen to your point, Chloe, just because of how much he is triggered by the presence of a of, of a Dementor. Because I feel like, and the other minister brought this up, then the Boggart would have turned Lupin into a werewolf. Like there, there seems to be an extreme end of the effect that this particular Boggart has on Harry. It obviously works for the purposes of the story as well, but I just think that 
um, there's probably a mix happening here where what Harry is going through is having an effect, but also the Dementor itself or the Bogart itself is having an effect, I guess. So let's talk about Lupin's explanation of the Patronus. He says the Patronus is a kind of positive force, a projection of the very things that the Dementor feeds upon. Hope, happiness, the desire to survive, but it cannot feel despair as real humans can, so the Dementors can't hurt it. To conjure it... He, Harry, must think of his happiest memory. So over the course of the lessons, he picks from a few different options until he finds one that truly works. And kind of classic storytelling here has got to try three times before uh, something really happens. Memory one, the first time he was on a broomstick. Didn't work out. Good memory for Harry. Certainly made him happy. But is that the happiest memory he's got? Turns out it's not. Memory two, winning the house championship, also Quidditch related. Um, and this one, he sees some progress with the Dementor out again. Harry's memory of the night Voldemort killed his parents goes further than before. Um, this time he hears James telling Lily to take Harry and run. And this is significant because this is the first time Harry hears his dad. And because of this, Lupin tells Harry he and his dad were friends. And this also really gets Harry, this memory that he's reliving, because um, Harry notes that he has tears running down his face. And later, Harry asks Lupin if he knew Sirius when they were younger. And unlike how he describes his relationship with James, he doesn't go so far as to say he was friends with Sirius. I thought that was an interesting... It's because they were more than friends. Oh. <laughs> yeah. There's that whole, like, I thought I knew him. I know. It's <laughs> yeah. very, I will say, like, obviously, Wolf Star isn't confirmed canon, but it does very much read as him, like, thinking about an ex-lover or, like, someone that was more, meant more to him than just a friend. Like, I thought I knew him. Like, that's something I think you would say about someone. And, like, obviously, he's wronged him, but it just feels like I don't want to talk about it because it's so painful to me. In like a more than friend way. That's interesting. Oh man, the Wolf Star shippers are going to be so excited this week. I listen. <laughs> I'm on Marauders TikTok, and I know that Gen Z like is so hyper focused on it. So I, I thought I'd give a shout out to you. have to represent to my people, right? Sure. <laughs> By the way, we have an exciting update. Court, who's listening live on our Patreon right now, got one of the AI tools to create a Duck Dementor. And it looks great. Well done. I'm alarmed. I'm alarmed. <laughs> okay, we will not be posting that no, on social no, media, no, it sounds we like. Should. We'll post it on our story. Oh, it's not going to the grid. No. No, <laughs> yeah. it's not. It's not grid worthy. <laughs> not grid worthy. I personally wow. like this trend we have of giving the Discord homework <laughs> to create AI art of the unhinged things we say on the show. I like it, too, because that means I don't have to do it, which exactly. is great. <laughs> Work smarter, not harder. I would happily do it if I knew how to do it well. This, <laughs> this one's like really good. I feel like if I typed this into one of the AI tools I was messing with, I wouldn't have gotten this nice result. It's actually very cool. It is cool. Well done. Thank you, Court. So so that's what's underneath a Dementor's hood. <laughs> They're ducks. It's a oh, duck. Oh, we answered it. <laughs> I declare 
Canon. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We got to be careful. We got to be careful. Getting back to Harry hearing his father, I thought that when Lupin responded by saying, you heard James, it connects him to Harry on a whole different level because he doesn't say, oh, you heard your father or, mm. oh, that's interesting. He specifically says James. And so you know that there's a connection between the two of them that runs deeper than anything we've been told up until this point. It's it's such a good point. And it's Lupin letting his guard down a little bit. I have to think in all these scenes where Lupin and Harry are alone and connecting, that Lupin is like aching to tell him more about even like when Lupin was visiting him before he was one, you know, knowing him as a baby. Um, I I know that it breaks him heart his heart to not be like Uncle Mooney and to just be Lupin yeah. in this situation, Professor Lupin. Like I just every time we talk about it, I just like want to cry because of the what's happening in Harry's head, like trying to piece together like what his dad was like and his Hogwarts days and learning more, and then Lupin like holding back on telling him what's going on. And we don't really know why he does that, but one thing I did want to just point out, which I thought was really interesting with the first, like with Lupin's explanation is the desire to survive. When I read that, I was like, there's moments in the series that Harry does not have the desire to survive, especially obviously in the seventh book. And I'm curious, like, he couldn't be necessarily affected by the, I wonder if he couldn't be necessarily affected by the Dementors once he came to the conclusion that he was ready to die. Oh, wow. I wonder if you're not affected, and this is so dark, but I wonder if you're ready to die and prepared to die and no longer have the desire to survive, which we know happens a lot around Dementors and Azkaban, like, can they affect them anymore once they've gotten to that point? I think you may be right, because I feel like, and I'm searching my PDF for this right now to see if I can find it, but I feel like when Harry is walking across the grounds, um, he has the invisibility cloak on at that point, right? Or maybe he already gave it away. I don't remember. But anyway. Doesn't affect the Dementors. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, He was walking across the grounds. And I think he specifically talks about feeling the chill of Dementors nearby. But he doesn't really reference any other impact on him. True. So I think you're on to something there. And also the embodiments of obviously Lupin and his mom and his dad and Sirius also maybe could potentially be thought of as like Patronus replacements in that situation. But as we're talking about Dementors, which we know are the physical embodiments of depression, the author has actually said that the Dementors interacting with Harry actually really makes me think of PTSD. So beyond depression, which I think like looms over everyone at points in their life and we all struggle with mental health, I think that Harry reliving the worst moment of his life over and over again is it just feels more like PTSD a PTSD episode and I'm not a psychiatrist or a therapist so I'm not diagnosing like giving him a diagnosis but I do think this is a popular theory or thought but as someone who does have PTSD and goes through this I'm like willing to bet a lot of galleons that Harry does too like his symptoms are textbook he 
has flashbacks and nightmares, which we start learning about, you know, in this book, and it just gets worse and worse and like severe emotional distress or physical reactions to something that reminds you of a traumatic event, meaning like falling over, fainting, having just such a visceral reaction to the dementors that the people around him don't have, even if they have a really hard, hard reaction to them even like i'd argue that neville has like probably the worst compared to to harry when it comes to reacting to the the dementors but also a white fog obscures his sentence his uh, senses which is often common with ptsd like you forget large chunks of your memory or you try to like blur out or things go in and out of focus because you're trying to like you know, cast away a traumatic event, but it's right there, which also happens to him. Like, I just think that it is, I wonder if even the author had PTSD in mind while she was writing this, this reaction, because it feels that way. I would think so. Part of me wonders too, and Chloe, you made me think about this as you were going through and describing, is part of Harry's experience here, the Horcrux, in that He's reliving what happened to his parents the night that they were murdered because a part of Voldemort's soul that was actually present now lives within him. Because, and I'm not in any way minimizing Harry's ability to remember exactly what happened that night, but he was also very young. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes me think that a lot of what he's able to recall, especially hearing his father to me if his father was out in the hallway like and he's in his crib let's say or or maybe I'm not recalling exactly what happens right I'm just thinking like a lot of it could be from Voldemort's perspective as opposed to being from Harry's perspective mm-hmm. it probably is actually if we are honest cuz we don't make memories really until we're 3 yeah, but I think it still is a nod to PTSD. Like I oh, just don't yeah. know how it couldn't For be. Sure. Like it's both. That's that's just the answer. One thing that's really interesting about this is like he goes back to one point that we're surprised that he remembers. Like honestly, if I'm thinking about it, I'm surprised that his worst memories aren't like being abused by the Dursleys or, you know, not being not being able to have food or being, you know, physically and emotionally abused. Like those are memories that he has 100% that he went to Hogwarts with. And it's, it's interesting that we go to that memory and it becomes more and more clear. I'd be, I'd be willing to bet that it is at least influenced heavily by the Horcrux that's in Harry right now. And Harry could also be filling in some of these gaps. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at studies of how memory works, Every time you remember something, you're not actually remembering the event. You're remembering the last time you remembered it. So Harry's mind might be filling in some of these gaps for him. Not that it makes it any less legitimate. It's still a very real, um, but he could be plugging uh, some puzzle pieces in for sure. And trauma can sometimes bring something to the forefront clearer than it would be if you didn't have trauma surrounding that event, right? It can right. almost like create like a clear vision of a, a bad situation, which, you know, isn't awesome. So let's look at memory three here. And this is the one that works best. When he learns he was a wizard, you're a wizard, Harry. 
this is his top memory. This is the one that makes him happiest. And I was wondering if we were in Harry's position, would it be this for us? Or do we agree that this is his happiest memory thus far? Because I feel like if for me, maybe entering Hogwarts for the first time or being sorted would top learning you're a wizard. Because he was so anxious though when he was sorted. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So maybe just walking into Hogwarts, but maybe he was very anxious there as well. Because think about where he was when he learned he was a wizard. He had the Dursleys breathing over his shoulder. It was a dark and stormy night on this cliff. Like <laughs> maybe I'm just being um maybe I'm I'm looking at it poorly just because of like the surroundings. But I don't know. The whole situation, it wasn't like the most exciting moment. It wasn't like confetti went off and he got to ride down a rainbow and the sun was shining and he had the coolest people around him. Like it was a pretty gritty event. And yet that's his happiest memory. So, but to go back to the abuse that we were just talking about, he finally gets to leave. He gets to escape this yeah, horrible place that he's been for 10 years. I'm free. Like I'm that's free. Yeah. that's pretty that's monumentous. And there's this contrast, right? Because he's in this horrible setting with these horrible people who have abused him and in the space of about 30 seconds he hears that he's free. He finds mm-hmm. out that he's free and that he gets to leave and you know, he does have to come back every year, but, <laughs> um, you know, he doesn't know why at this point. And there's freedom in knowing that his world has just opened up. He doesn't know exactly what to expect from it, but he knows that whatever it is that's waiting for him in the wizarding world can't be any worse than being with the Dursleys. So I think it makes sense. But there are other, I think, to your point, there are other memories that yeah. could be considered his happiest memory. What ideas do you have for his happiest memory? I feel like uh, the week he got to spend in Diagon Alley this past mm. summer. Shopping. Would probably qualify. It's like... <laughs> Retail therapy. That's my happy place, though. But, like, it's the one, like, normal week he has where he also gets to be independent, make his own schedule and just do whatever he wants in the wizarding world. And it's clear that he was like, we think back to that chapter. I think I remember us talking about how we don't get to see this side of Harry very much. So this could qualify. I think that his time spent at the borough before his second year, like he is so happy and carefree and gets to be with his best friend and gets to be in a wizarding home for the first time. And he is so in awe of everything that there is. And he gets to play Quidditch with Fred, George, and Ron. And it just... Outside in in public, sort of. And he gets such amazing food. And like, after a horrifying summer where, you know, he's literally locked in his room, like, I I can imagine that was a really, really happy happy um set of weeks for him yeah the wizarding family part is key for me there because obviously with the dursleys it was they they didn't want an ounce of magic happening in the house and you go from that to the weasleys who obviously are wizards themselves but encourage magic it's just like i think i i I love that one for that reason he gets like a family like he's, he's starting to get adopted by the weasleys and he gets to experience siblings 
and like a mother's love really for the first time. Um, yeah, which is crazy. And even Arthur like is interested in talking with him about muggle things. Like he feels wanted and loved for probably the first time ever in his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting though, to look at the progression of memories and how Harry like slowly starts to realize what is powerful and what maybe is just kind of like a very short, happy moment, right? Like the first time he was on a broomstick winning the house championship it's not strong enough but then once you start to get to something like learning he was a wizard or the two examples that you both referenced being at the burrow being in diagon alley on his own like they're more powerful they have more meaning to them and we also have to remember harry's 13 years old and he did not grow up under the best of conditions so his bank of happy moments and happy memories is not like a wealth of for him to be able to draw from uh so that that's also something to keep in mind here too and harry's under pressure he has a split second to really think of it hone in on it and make it work and i think you know it it's important to for us to kind of keep that in mind here too that's why lupin says this is very advanced magic and not something often that a 13-year-old is capable of doing. And I think that's part of the reason why. Yeah, yeah. They don't have as much life experience. Well, mm-hmm. I was also thinking in terms of like the power, right? And it is so sad when you're reading it, especially as an adult and realizing that Harry doesn't actually have that many moments to go on. And you just like your heart breaks even more for the kid. But I wonder if love needs to be a part of the memory. Because we know that is one of the most powerful forms of magic. Dumbledore talks about it a lot. And the memories that Harry actually latches on to later that produce full corporal Patronuses are with his family and serious. And mm-hmm. they include love between two people, between his family. And even if the memories like are so distant and he barely is, remembers them, the broomstick memory, I think, is one of the first ones he uses to actually produce a full Patronus. Like, I wonder if love has to be a part of it. And none of these memories, like Quidditch, finding out he's a wizard, winning the house championship, they don't include love. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, yeah, I mean, speaking of like, the, and that's why I like the family memory being at the borough. Um, that's love. That's just being Agreed. surrounded by love. Yeah. One one thing I did want to bring up though is after this session concludes, Harry gets a moment where he goes and he kind of sits down in the hallway and he really has a, a moment of internal struggle because for as much as he wants to be able to fight off the Dementors, it's also noted that he really wants to be able to hear his parents. And so like these two things are in constant conflict with each other because for as much as he wants to push that Dementor away, there's probably some level of comfort that comes from being able to hear the voice of his mother and his father, even though it's in a very sad moment. Yeah, because he kind of took a step further in this chapter with hearing his dad for the first time, he might be wondering, how much more can I experience? And it kind of reminds me of what, of how Harry got kind of addicted to seeing his family in the mirror of Erised in book one. I was just about to bring that up. Something I spoke about when we did that episode was 
Harry just wants so desperately to know his parents, to know where he comes from. And he gets these really tiny little moments until like later on with the memories. And um, it's so heartbreaking that he is desperate enough to want to know his parents and like hear them as someone who doesn't know her birth parents, like the, the absolute like guttural and instinctual need to know where you come from and to understand like who might've given you your voice or your personality or, you know, your strength. Um, it's, it's obviously a through line through the books, but this is another moment where it's just like, oh my gosh, Harry is descending to the deepest, darkest place just to get even a moment with his family. Yeah. On a somewhat related note, there's an interesting connecting the threads um, that we can draw here from Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix. Um, in both of these, Harry's having private lessons with a teacher. You know, in this book, it's Lupin and Order of the Phoenix, it's Snape. And, you know, in this book, Harry is having to sort of dig deep within himself and use his memories and open up his mind to be able to produce a Patronus to fight a Dementor. Whereas in Order of the Phoenix, he's having to learn to close down his mind and not let Snape get into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, Harry gets whiplash, <laughs> unfortunately yeah. for him. So weeks of more practice sessions don't yield the results that Harry is looking for. Um, though Lupin tells him that for a 13 year old wizard, even an indistinct Patronus is a huge achievement and he isn't passing out anymore. And I think Mikey, you wanted to celebrate this. I mean, he brings up a good point, right? Right. It's really important to note that Harry is doing extremely advanced magic. And I think this is a combination of Harry being a really good student, but also Lupin, as we've talked about a lot in this book, being a really good teacher. And one of the mm-hmm. first that connects with Harry on a level that we don't, what we haven't experienced yet. And I think Lupin is also one of the first adults to really show Harry that he believes in him and his ability in this case to conjure a Patronus. I don't think Harry has had anybody like that in his life up until this point. We talked about the Dursleys. They obviously were not supportive parental replacements uh, for Lily and James. And even through his first like two and a half years at Hogwarts, he hasn't had anybody quite like this. Dumbledore hasn't really served in that role. McGonagall hasn't served in that role. Lupin is really the first. And I think that's why a lot of people like him. Oh, at yeah. least at this point in the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know other people tend to not like him as the story progresses, but we can save that when we get uh, to the later books. But even taking that, the later books into context, like Lupin is so real and there for Harry. And we see so many horrible examples of parental figures and mentors. And Lupin is a wonderful teacher and a wonderful support system for Harry, but he's also flawed and that's real. Like, no Mm -hmm. parents are perfect. No mentors are perfect. Like, and he is the best thing. I think that we get actually throughout. I think he's a better mentor and parental figure to Harry than Sirius is. 
which we yep. can talk about. And Eric's not here to defend Sirius, so yikes. But <laughs> I, I do think that this is just so, it's so moving because we finally get Harry. Harry actually asks Lupin questions. And I don't know if we talk about how big of a deal that is, because growing up, Harry's told you can never ask questions. Don't ask questions. And for him to feel comfortable enough to ask Lupin scary, difficult questions says so much about how comfortable Lupin makes Harry feel for the first Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure learning that James and Lupin were friends was kind of um, a gate that was lifted for Harry in terms yeah. of building trust. Definitely. On the fact that it's advanced magic, this is like a super spicy take and it's me going like very left field. But speaking of the Horcrux that Micah brought up and that perhaps affecting the memory that comes up when the Dementors are, you know, attacking Harry or around Harry. Do we think that Harry hosting a part of Voldemort's soul, even if it's a small part of Voldemort's soul, makes him more powerful than he would be as a 13-year-old? Because Voldemort is a very powerful wizard, right? He did great things. Terrible, but great. <laughs> right? So, like, if Voldemort is one of the most powerful wizards of all time and he's hosting a part of his soul, wouldn't that make him inherently more powerful than the typical 13-year-old wizard? Yeah. And, I mean, you could probably apply that to all of Harry's skills, or a lot of them at yeah. least, right? So, yeah. I like. I don't think that's as spicy as, as you as you might think. I, I like riding <laughs> out Horcrux theories like this. <laughs> Do we... I just... Is we don't know for sure because but... Voldemort's there. Like, oh yeah, well, well, yeah, and I'm sure he was still a great wizard even after he defeated Voldemort. So true, yeah. very true. Well, I think the point that um, we come back to again and again, especially once we learn about the prophecy, is so much of Harry's story is defined by the fact that Voldemort chose him, right? Voldemort didn't have to choose him. The prophecy gave Voldemort choices, but he chose Harry. And one way or another, Harry's marked because of Mm. it. And I think just based on that and the unique life experience he's had because of it, he's going to have abilities that are more advanced in some ways than his peers. There are also going to be things about him that that are maybe um, deficiencies when compared Mm. to his peers because of what he lacked growing up because Voldemort took everything away from him. Yeah, I I really like this take. And I I think we should continue to pay attention to moments where the Horcrux could in fact be a factor. But obviously, having read through the series the first time, we wouldn't be able to point those moments out. Mm -hmm. And the other piece just to add on is we know Tom Riddle is extremely good at defense against the dark arts. Mm -hmm. So it's natural to think that maybe he passed on a little bit of that to Harry when the Horcrux attached itself. And that is why, to your point, Chloe, at 13, Harry is really good at defense against the dark arts. Yeah, like way above his peers to the point where later he teaches them. And I think obviously Harry in his own right is a very powerful wizard, but I think it's because Voldemort did make him his adversary, right? He was forced to grow up too fast, forced to be the savior of the wizarding world as a teenager. And 
of course, that's going to make you more powerful because you have to be. He feels like he has to step into this role, you know, especially being famous for something he doesn't remember. He like needs to be good enough for everyone in the wizarding world. He needs to prove himself. And so regardless of even the piece, if whether or not the piece of the Vol- of Voldemort's soul in him is making him more powerful, Voldemort certainly made him more powerful just by choosing him and forcing yes. him to be this person. And mm. there are clear examples of some kind of transfer happening uh, with the Horcrux. I mean, Harry speaks Parseltongue, for example. Uh, the Sorting Hat seriously considered putting him in Slytherin. I mean, these are things that we know happen because of the Horcrux. It's just not clear to us. And I don't think we ever get a definitive answer mm-hmm. about what Horcrux dormancy looks like. Like, is it like, is it hibernating and seasonally it wakes up? Is it like a volcano? (laughs) You know? A summer horcrux. Hot horcrux summer. (laughs) I'm imagining Voldemort as like Ash Ketchum showing up and getting the choice of like Bulbasaur, Charmander, and uh, Squirtle. And it's like Harry Neville and and whoever the third is. (laughs) And he's like, I choose you. Uh, All right. Two title ideas. I choose you, Harry, or Hot Horcrux Summer. (laughs) Or the Dementor Duck. That I love alliteration. Yeah. There's so many options. (laughs) Well, I think I think we have options for Hot Horcrux Summer maybe later on. Okay. Fair. (laughs) All right. We can we we can save it. We can we can save it for like four years from now. Um So Lupin tells Harry about the Dementor's kiss. I'll read what he said. It's what Dementors do to those they wish to destroy utterly. I suppose there must be some kind of mouth under the hood because they clamp their jaws upon the mouth of the victim and suck out their soul. Oof. Where's the AI art for that? I don't I don't need to see that. <laughs> I don't want to see that. Somebody's going to do it. I'm just warning you. All I put in the, the doc was vomit. <laughs> That Which is I our think pretty much sucks. Chloe's up. offered a lot of deep analysis today, and here's the latest bit. V- vomit. vomit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it's also disgusting. We get descriptions a little bit later about how their breath smells like decay. Yeah. Like, ugh, can you ugh. imagine that that coming for you? And then I have my own unhinged question here. What if the Dementor's kiss was your first and only kiss? <laughs> Oh my god i hope they at least use some tongue okay i low-key oh my god micah please i think barty couch jr's first kiss was the dementor's kiss Ooh, is that horrible wow i can't picture someone wanting to kiss him barty crouch jr stands have just Hit stop on this episode. I'm sorry. Are-, are there stands of Barty Crouch Jr.? Go do some hard well, reflection. David Tennant fans would not be happy with I was going to say the David Tennant Barty Crouch Jr. fans. Yeah, yeah. I just, I think that maybe he wasn't kissed at Hogwarts, so then he became a dark wizard on top of the, yeah. uh, the daddy issues. So... And, and that's Lupin... why he did that weird thing in the movie with his tongue. Oh, oh my time. God. <laughs> oh, inexperienced. It all comes together. Lupin further explains that this is not 
the Dementor are killing the victim. Rather, it's a fate much worse than death. He says, quote, you'll have no sense of self anymore, no memory, no anything. There's no chance at all of recovery. You'll just exist as an empty shell. Pretty sad, pretty deep. Another connection to depression, right, Laura? Yeah, uh, depression and and also by extension, PTSD, um, to Chloe's earlier points, can act can you know, absolutely make you feel empty and cause memory loss. I mean, if you're in a deep state of depression, you can lose large periods of time um, and not really be able to kind of point out your memories in a linear fashion. Um, So this is, it's a great representation of what that's like. Yeah, this is, probably as dark as anything we get in this entire series. And and it made me think about what we experience in Makusa mm. with um Newt and Tina. It when their, you know, happy memories are are you know pulled out of their mind and it's like what's going to be left of them afterwards. And it, it raises the point, why even allow these people to exist after something as cruel as this yeah it's almost like they're zombies more humane to kill them almost mm-hmm. yeah and a lot of them after receiving the kiss we know commit suicide like starve themselves or you know end their lives in different ways which is absolutely heartbreaking as well it also yeah. emphasizes again the importance of soul in this series and like what that means as a wizard it certainly means something different than it does in the muggle world, in my opinion. Yeah. I wonder if your soul is what carries the magic too. Like after a Dementor's kiss, like, are you able to produce magic? Probably not because you don't know who you are anymore. Yeah. I wonder if the soul is integral to how powerful you are. It almost feels like an opposite end of what Voldemort does, right? In creating a Horcrux, he's ripping his soul, he's tearing it apart, he's destroying it. And here on the other side, you have Dementors who are just completely removing it. And so you wonder if that's the effect of completely removing your soul, what's happening to Voldemort is he's kind of shredding it away through all these people that he's killing. Is he getting even more evil, even more dark and twisted? Or just less less of a person well right? yeah for sure yeah yeah so harry tells lupin that black deserves the kiss and lupin says you think so i'm wondering what lupin is thinking here when he responds in this way and this actually i i want to revisit this line when we talk about quidditch a little later in this episode but i gotta think something interesting is running through lupin's head i think part of it is his personal connection to sirius but i also think He's somebody who has suffered his entire life being a werewolf and having a pretty extreme condition. And so I think he sees the Dementor's kiss as something that nobody deserves Mm -hmm. to have to experience. Because it's like this lifelong sentence, like being a werewolf. And I think he sees it as just a really dark and insidious way of harming somebody like you're removing their being from them i i just think you get to see a little bit more of the human side of lupin here 
Yeah. It is. It's so cruel. And I could even see someone like Lupin, you know, I, I don't know. I feel this way when, and Chloe, I think you raised this point in the doc about comparisons to the death penalty in the muggle world. Yeah. Obviously, it's not the same thing. Um, and Lupin does note here that, you know, this is a fate that's worse than death. Nobody, I think, deserves something like this. And even if somebody does deserve some kind of life sentence punishment for something horrific that they've done, is the answer to then remove their soul and any recognition of the thing that they did? I mean, are you really punishing somebody for something horrific if you take away all knowledge and awareness of the thing that they did? Yeah. There's an argument to be made that like you should have to live with what you did. Yeah. You take away their guilt too when Mm -hmm. you take away their, their memories and who they are. And there's no takesy backsies, right? Like if, (laughs) if you find out they're innocent later, you can't undo it. Exactly. Which is why I think it feels so much ickier with Sirius when we learn later that he didn't even get a trial. Like, he was just thrown in Azkaban, and they were like, you did this. And obviously, if Sirius actually killed 13 muggles and did what he did, there is an argument that he deserves it, right? And just like there's an argument when people do horrible, horrible things for the death penalty. I was going to jokingly bring that up. (laughs) Yeah, but it's so so nuanced, right? And, like, how do you just decide who gets to live and who gets to be without a soul in this case? But without a trial, I don't think Sirius does deserve this because Mm -mm. we don't Mm -hmm. actually know. And obviously there's a lot of, like, honestly plot holes in terms of how we deal with crime in the Harry Potter universe with, you know, potentially using like a pensive to look at memories and also like Veritas serum, you know, trying to do a truth potion. Um, Both, I think, more humane alternatives to a Dementor's kiss from the get-go. And which is also why Dumbledore gets so angry when Fudge is like, oh, just, you know, when Fudge just says Barty Crouch Jr. Jr. gets the Dementor's kiss, but because we lose so much information because they can't say anything about their past or what they did. This is fascinating. I feel like we could actually do an entire episode about Dementors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And how they work. We basically have at this point. I know. I know. (laughs) So let's move on now to talking about the other half of this chapter, which was... Quidditch and the Firebolt and Oliver Wood. (laughs) Harry and Ron are pissed that Hermione told McGonagall about Harry receiving the Firebolt. Now, I have to say, to defend Hermione here, wouldn't the teacher have found out eventually that suddenly Harry has this super cool new broom Mm -hmm. and wonder where it came from? And then what would have Harry said? Oh, I got a... It came from a mystery recipient. Like, that would have raised some flags. So even though I understand why they are annoyed at Hermione, and I do think Hermione's decision was justified, I do think they also have to keep in mind that somebody would have been wondering eventually where this broom came from. Would he have lied and said, I bought it myself? I don't know if Harry would have had the foresight to do that because he wouldn't have known that they were going to take his broom away. 
Yeah, Harry's a bad liar. Yeah, I don't think he would have lied. That's not been successful for him no. in the past. He couldn't even think to forge his own Hogsmeade permission slip. Oh so, my god, I know. Yeah, I think Hermione's a convenient scapegoat for Harry and Ron in this moment because... You mean this they, book? <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's true. Um, because I think you're right, no matter what. Um, Harry would have had the firebolt confiscated here, whether Hermione ratted him out or not. She just kind of sped up the inevitable outcome here. And Harry and Ron would have been super pissed either way um, over the firebolt being confiscated. And it's just convenient for them that Hermione is the the person that they can project their anger onto, especially yeah. Ron. One thing I was wondering is, shouldn't all new brooms be investigated for use? We see Draco obviously purchase, well, not Draco, but his dad purchase brooms for the entire Slytherin Quidditch team in Chamber of Secrets. And I'm wondering, were those evaluated when they were brought into the school? <laughs> yeah. But this also brings up another good point that, Chloe, I know you were. Yeah. It, uh, Quidditch is so flawed and I love it so much, but- Outside of the brooms being investigated, which they totally should be if they're not a Hogwarts school broom, I'm, I'm with Micah there. How are they allowed to have different models, especially since these models are faster? We know that they're faster. And yes, obviously, how you fly it greatly impacts that. But a firebolt is objectively better than a clean sweep seven. And yeah. it's just not fair at all. And all it means is that if you have more money, you get to be a better Quidditch player, which yeah. feels like a metaphor for the real world. But if you have a Firebolt or a Nimbus 2001, you have a head start as a seeker, especially as a seeker, because speed is so integral to yeah. that player. It would be like if an NBA team here in the muggle world or uh, NFL team had like each team had their own football or basketball. Mm. And because one team had more money, they had a football that can fly further or, you know, is it the weights different? So I totally agree. Everybody should be playing with the same brooms, make them great brooms, give everybody Nimbus 2001s, but everybody has those. I will say it does actually point to how just, how talented the Weasley brothers are at Quidditch yeah. for them to be able to be fantastic beaters and Charlie Weasley, a fantastic seeker with probably on Hogwarts brooms, or if they have their own brooms on, you know, probably a very average slower brooms because they can't afford the more expensive ones. So that does say a lot about their skill level, which is great, but they still at the end of the day, have a you know disadvantage mm -hmm. and it makes me wonder too if um if teams are ever strategic about which positions get which kind of broomstick like obviously <laughs> it's more important for the seeker to have a quicker broomstick than maybe it is for beaters definitely so maybe that's an intentional choice but yeah i agree it seems like there needs to be some kind of standardization i think that's yeah. what we're looking for like Hogwarts needs to have, and Quidditch in general, I mean, you would think that there would be some kind of international rules committee, just like there is in a lot of real sports, dictating well, don't what they? 
Yeah, but they don't actually the international confederation of wizards, like yeah, Quidditch World Cup. They and they all have the same room at the Quidditch World Cup, so at least that's a little more fair. Yeah, Andrew and I's house, one hundred percent. And listen, I love being a Slytherin, but we have our flaws certainly, and we can't be trusted. We and we'll. (laughs) Whoa, I did not say that. What I will say though is that Marcus Flint, the cap, the captain of the Slytherin Quidditch team, absolutely factors in the fact that Draco Malfoy's father could buy them all Nimbus 2001s and therefore Draco was on the team because mm-hmm. them all having Nimbus 2001s give them an unfair advantage. And we know that Slytherin wins the Quidditch Cup um, at this point for eight years. I think that's what McGonagall says in this chapter, which and we know that Slytherin typically tends to have wealthy, wealthy students because they are a lot of purebloods which come from rich wizarding families with a lot of history so chances are their quidditch has always been stacked with wealthy students that can afford the best brooms so chances are that the slytherin team has always had an unfair advantage over all of the other house teams which means that which makes sense why the last eight years they would have won (laughs) and the other houses haven't really had a fair shot yeah yeah so at the start of the chapter, Wood seems to imply that he wants to replace Harry for the upcoming Quidditch game. He says, I really didn't want to lose you as a seeker, Harry. It's the first time I actually missed. Would you? Did you get that read too, Micah? It sounded like he wanted to be, he, he was thinking of benching Harry. Yeah, 100%. I think that that's how I read it is that that seemed the direction that the conversation was initially going before he found out about the firebolt was that he couldn't risk having Harry pass out or have something happen again with a Dementor. And so he was considering benching him as a result of it. What an asshole move. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but Oliver Wood is so one note and has so little character dimension. It is insane. He is so one track mind, only about Quidditch. And he's kind of a terrible captain in the sense that he like is so... Uh, he has he lacks empathy. Harry has never made a mistake as as seeker ever. The one yeah. time he does, Wood's like, "Well, I guess I'm going to bench him now because He's he made so one mistake." Which on is winning. crazy. And like, yeah. And obviously, seeker Harry is one of the best seekers in a really long time. Like, what? Yeah. Also, what other seekers does Gryffindor have? I mean, See, who's on the who's on seriously. the bench? I really want to know who's Oliver going to replace Harry with. Yeah. Ginny, I mean, because that's what we see later, but Ginny as a as a second year might not Yeah, have we the don't skills. know that at the time. Yeah. yeah. But Harry does seem to understand where Oliver's coming from because I mean, he wants to win just as much he wants Gryffindor to win just as much as Wood does and we also have to remember that Wood, as we saw earlier in this book, this is his last year, he really wants to win the cup. So, like I I think the thing that gets me is that Wood is prioritizing winning over Harry's safety, and that's pretty disturbing. Literally. He's like, I don't care if the broom is rigged. We just want Harry to play. What is the role of the Quidditch captain, I wanted to ask? Like... <laughs> <laughs> it's their job to make sure the team wins or that the team is safe. Like, what's more important? I guess both factors. I was going to say, a good captain is going to prioritize both. 
and yeah. prioritize also training, which Oliver does. That way that there his team can be safe because they have more experience as well. I think Oliver does do a good job with that, but he lacks empathy, man. McGonagall doesn't even, or sorry, Wood doesn't even seem to realize that what he's saying is terrible. I'm going to read a quote here. Quote, I've just been to Professor McGonagall about the fireball. She got a bit shirty with me, told me I'd got my priorities wrong, seemed to think I cared more about winning the cup than I do about you staying alive just because I told her I didn't care if it threw you off as long as you caught the snitch first. Honestly, the way she was yelling at me, you'd think I'd said something terrible. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I think I mentioned this during the last episode, but if we look at Harry's track record in important Quidditch matches through the first two years, he's had some struggles, right? Like Quirrell mm-hmm. is after him in Sorcerer's Stone. Dobby is after him in Chamber of Secrets. The Dementors have already been after him in Prisoner of Azkaban. So Harry, you know, consider all things considered, he's actually... A, I would say even better than he's made out to be as a seeker because he's able to persevere Mm -hmm. through all these things. And in a couple of those instances, actually catch the snitch before doom ensues. But (laughs) I I don't know. Like I agree with what's being said about Wood. Like he's one of those characters that, and, and he's young too, right? Let's not forget he's a teenager, but he's so focused on this one thing. And that's probably the only thing right now that's important in his life. And like all he cares about is Quidditch and being the best at Quidditch. Mm. And it's maybe he's not good at and, and winning else. before he leaves Hogwarts. I was about to say, it's his last chance. It's his last yeah. chance yeah. to win. And he knows that he can do it with Harry, which is weird why he's like considering benching him because he needs Harry to win. Um, but it's it feels like what is written is like I am Jock care about one thing Ugh. yeah like that's it mm-hmm. and it's really yeah. <laughs> it's like embarrassing. Well, you mentioned Wolfstar earlier. Uh, if you Google Oliver Wood, Marcus Flint comes up a lot oh, too. Yeah. So uh, if people are interested in getting their fan fiction on, uh, go for it. <laughs> Wood isn't a lot of fanfics for being so one dimensional. I will say though, to his credit, he does come back in book seven and fight in the Battle of Hogwarts. True. So, you know, he does develop, but in this moment, he is extremely um, single minded and just totally has tunnel vision. Yeah. And I will say, like, yes, he's young, but Harry is 13 and Wood is presumably 18. He's mm-hmm. a seventh year. So 17 or 18, he should know a little better on how to speak yep. to a younger student that is he is responsible yeah. for in this moment. However, let's also consider the fact that he could be getting recruited by Quidditch teams at this point. And True. if he doesn't even have a house cut to hang his hat on, you know, who's going to want him once he graduates Hogwarts? Ooh. Great point. So Harry does ask throughout this chapter, can I have my broom back yet? He really wants it back, of course. Uh, I just wanted to highlight one line. No, Potter, you can't have it back yet. McGonagall told him the 12th time this happens. <laughs> we see the number 12 pop up a lot throughout the series. So I wanted just to continue highlighting those moments. Um, towards the end of the chapter, he does get his broom back. And shocker, there's nothing dangerous in the broom at all. Um, Now, what I find very interesting is that this happens right after 
his conversation with Lupin about the Dementor's kiss in which Harry says he wishes Sirius, the fireball giver, should receive the kiss. And Lupin replies, you think so? To me, it feels like a hint from the author that Lupin feels he isn't so sure if Sirius is bad. You think he deserves the kiss. You think so? And then here's a hidden bit of proof that, you know, you see more clearly in hindsight that Sirius isn't so bad after all. I just love how these two moments are paired together. You think so about Sirius? This lets me bring up the point I was going to earlier. I, I also think this is just a teaching moment between Lupin and Harry as well, where Lupin is the teacher is just kind of, you know, prodding him a bit and being like, oh, you think so? Like, do you really understand the full context of what it means for somebody to receive the Dementor's kiss? And going back to our conversation earlier, Lupin, I think, has a strong appreciation for what this actually entails and doesn't believe that anyone is deserving of that type of treatment, including Sirius, who's also, you know, his best friend from from his years at Hogwarts. But also, again, Harry is young. Like, I don't think Harry has a full comprehension of what the Dementor's Kiss actually means for somebody. Harry and Ron decide they should make up with Hermione, but Ron's interest in making up is short-lived, as when he's returning the Firebolt to the Gryffindor common room, he discovers that Scabbers may have been eaten or at least attacked by Crookshanks. And that is how the chapter ends. And let's not forget this immediately follows Neville having forgotten the password, which he mentions he wrote down the week's worth since Sir Cadigan keeps changing them. And we know that Sirius mm-hmm. actually used this list to get into Gryffindor Tower. So mm. important uh, things happening simultaneously. context. Simultaneously, yeah. yeah. It feels like this entire book, the trio is at odds with each other, whether it's like Ron and Hermione are fighting or Harry and Ron are fighting or Harry and Hermione are talking individually and Hermione and or and Harry and Ron are talking individually but they're not together. It I will say like I do think that Hermione's air of superiority and her emotional immaturity shine through in this book absolutely but the way that tr- Ron treats her especially is despicable. Um, I think Hagrid mentions this later, but it's uh, Hermione has a cat and a nasal, right? And half nasal, and it acts exactly like a half nasal slash cat would, even if Scabbers was just a normal rat. <laughs> so it's so unfair to like blame Hermione in that way. And I hate to lean into this, but I do think it was the author's intention that because the difficulty between Ron and Hermione, we start to see that Ron is a little obsessed with what Hermione is doing at all times. Like he Mm -hmm. is so hyper-focused on her school schedule and how she's managing it. And also like just jumps down her throat at any little thing. So I think that there's the, oh, you know, he's mean to you because he likes you, which again, I I hate and don't support, but I do think it's written into this book because Hermione, even though she's like, so stressed about her extra course load still finds time to care about Harry's safety, which like, I think she's the only one of them that actually grasps how in danger he is like a mass murder, a supposed mass murder is after him. And she still finds time to also care about Hagrid. What's going on with Hagrid and Buckbeak. I will say though, I, 
I think there's a lot of moments where Hermione doesn't respect Ron's boundaries. Oh, totally. And Ron, he may mm-hmm. not communicate in the best way possible, but I think that there are moments where he does ask, can you please like not bring your cat in here? <laughs> and Hermione just completely ignores what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. I think mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways too, and it, it doesn't justify anything, but Ron, I think sometimes feels like an outsider in the trio. Mm. And in some ways that does relate back to Hermione and his perception that he's maybe the last person she's thinking of. I mean, we see this reflected in Deathly Hallows when we see, you know, the way the Horcrux reacts to Ron and shows his deepest insecurity and it relates to Hermione. It could be that here in this book, he sees Hermione being so conscientious about Harry's safety and about what Hagrid's going through and about her course schedule. And he's getting jealous and he's like lashing out at her because she's, he doesn't feel like she's showing him the same degree of attention that she's giving or respect, you know, these other things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Let's put a pin in this and we'll discuss it more in the weeks ahead, I'm sure, because it does happen at the very end of the chapter here and there's more fallout to come. (laughs) Let's move to some odds and ends now. Hermione hints she knows something is up with Lupin, but doesn't go further because Ron still has attitude about the firebolt. (laughs) And just to add on to that, uh, the silvery orb is referenced again when Lupin is putting the boggart back in the suitcase when he is teaching Harry how to conjure a Patronus. So blink and you'll miss the silvery orb for what, the second time? Such a weird way to describe the moon. I'm sorry. I know why. <laughs> but can you imagine if I'm like, look at that silvery orb in the sky? What the hell, man? I wouldn't put it past you. Okay. (laughs) And also for that to be what Harry thinks it is too, right? Like, I don't know, like a 13-year-old looks at something and they're like, oh, that's a silvery orb. I No. (laughs) I don't know. Looks like Gak. I just feel like it's probably so obviously the moon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they take it there in the movie. In the movie, yeah. straight up is the moon. It's got clouds wafting around it. So they don't shy away from it there. Elsewhere in the chapter, Hermione is totally swamped with homework. And Ron, a very smart and observant character, is wondering <laughs> how she's getting to all those classes. And he notices conflicts in her schedule where she would need to be in two classes at once. I meant to make a note of this, but I think he actually says, how does she have the time? Like, specifically. Wink. Wink. Yeah. And Hermione's like, why are you so obsessed with me? Literally, he's observant <laughs> when it comes to her, for well, sure. he might think he's but going crazy. But in other crazy. moments, you're like, where is he that? He probably thinks he's going insane. He's like, she's showing up in all these different places. <laughs> One thing that I noticed was Hermione actually mentions on page 251 that her favorite subject is arithmancy. And I'm wondering, like, we don't really hear much about that throughout the rest of the series. But she says it distinctly to Harry, like she would never drop it because she loves that class so much. Was she maybe just like making that up in the moment, scrambling to come up with an excuse? Maybe. Maybe, but it does check because it's such an academic subject that I can imagine that and like Hermione might feel a little more challenged in it than other classes that she's take like that she's taking. So I'm not surprised, but I thought it was interesting because we don't really 
hear we know that harry's favorite class is obviously defense against the dark arts but i don't know if we ever hear like again what ron's favorite subject is or you know if hermione's continues to be arithmancy what is arithmancy actually the study of was yeah a court put it in the the chat is it not wizard math yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering if it was it because it made me think of occlumency, and mm. we learned a long time ago that occlumency is it's a play on words, right? And it's a clue men see, and so I was thinking like the this word it made me wonder if there's some kind of connection there, like arithmancy. The Harry Potter wiki describes it as a magical discipline that studied the magical properties of numbers, including predicting the future with numbers and numerology. Which is interesting because it's sort of like divination, but with numbers. (laughs) So Hermione's like, well, I'd much rather take that. It's my favorite subject, but she hates (laughs) the divination class. I know. I'm like, you're... Because of a certain someone, maybe this was McGonagall's recommendation. Well, it's less less wishy-washy, right? So that's probably why she likes it. I mean, is it though? Like, is a class <laughs> telling you seven's a magical number? How is that less wishy-washy than divination? I mean, it goes back to like, why is she, why is divination so far-fetched with her when she's like literally a witch? Yeah. I mean, it's also taught by Professor Vector, and we know that right. has its own ties to mathematics and physics and things like that so mm-hmm. but i agree like once you just read that definition andrew i was like wait so she is cool with predicting the future yeah as long as numbers are involved as long as there's an equation to get i just there. don't think she likes trelawney like i think that's that's what it comes down to yeah okay with that let's move on to mvp of the week i wrote this one earlier in the week and I don't feel it as strongly now, Good. but I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, I'm going to give my MVP of the week to Oliver Wood for trying to talk McGonagall into giving Harry his broom back. He was determined. I mean, I, you got to respect him for that part, at least. Crazy ass take. I loop in for me. Like, I don't know how you could give it to anybody else, but. Shocker. I'm going to give mine to, this is a hot take, Peter Pettigrew um, for successfully faking his own death again. Um, at least temporarily. We know Scabbers comes back later. Points for creativity, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I don't know if we do this often, and I also don't know if I'm allowed, but I'm breaking the rules, if so. Uh, I'm going to pick Harry for his emotional maturity throughout this chapter and his tenacity in fighting the Dementors. He is a really amazing character, and I think we don't hype him enough hype him up enough for being the the main character. That's totally fine. And the more unhinged and unpredictable this segment is, the better, I think. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Next week, we'll discuss Chapter 13 of Prisoner of Azkaban, Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw. If you have any feedback about today's episode or the chapters ahead, send an owl to mugglecast at gmail.com or use the contact form on mugglecast.com. You can also send a voice message, just record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file, or you can use our phone number, which is 19203Muggle. That's 19203684453. And now it's time for some quizage. Filling in for Eric this week, doing my best. My and Bialik. Uh, <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> last week's quizage question. 
In which location does Harry's first Patronus lesson take place? This is according to the book, not according to the movie. The movie was, of course, uh, inside of a renovated Dumbledore's office. But, <laughs> but in the book, the correct answer is the History of Magic classroom. Correct answers were submitted by two bottles of butterbeer and a large bar of Honeyduke's chocolate, Elizabeth K., Dumbledoozy, Looney Lovegood, the Hospital Wing's bedpan, <laughs> Lily Rose, the 11-year-old, Buff Daddy, Wormtail's toe, Bonus Patronus, Moral <laughs> Quandaries with Professor Lupin, Professor Shrek, Daedalus Diggle, and happy Father's Day to all of those celebrating, Wolfie McWolferton, Moldy Voldy, and Womp This Willow. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, along those lines, next week's question. What does Percy win from his girlfriend Penelope when Gryffindor beats Ravenclaw? Not to spoil next week's chapter, but... (laughs) But you just did. (laughs) MuggleCast.com slash Quizzage is where you can submit your answer. And a quick reminder that Eric, Chloe, and I will be at LeakyCon 2023 in Chicago this summer from August 4th through the 6th. Listeners who are interested in registering for the con can visit LeakyCon.com and enter code MUGGLE during checkout for a 10% discount. And as we've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, we're still finalizing our panel sessions. So Keep an eye out in the next couple of weeks or so. We'll have some more information, but we will be hosting a MuggleCast meetup for anybody in the Chicago area that weekend. You don't have to be attending the con to come. All are welcome. Uh, So definitely stop by and say hello. Yay. Okay. I'm excited. If you're enjoying the show and you think other muggles would too, tell a friend about us. We would really appreciate that. We'd also appreciate if you left a review in the podcast app you use, if they allow you to leave reviews. Just a reminder, again, we are supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Lots of benefits, including great bonus MuggleCast installments, like the Order of the Phoenix anniversary one I mentioned at the top of the show. So check that out. You can also support us if you're an Apple Podcast user for just $2.99 a month. You'll receive ad-free and early access to the show right within the Apple Podcast app. Great value. By the way, we just launched a great value, (laughs) as Michael likes to say. We just launched a trial within Apple Podcasts as well. So if you just want to sample the show ad-free, feel free to do that within Apple Podcasts. Okay. But it is great value. I know I said it last week, but it's it's less than $40 a year for ad-free MuggleCast. I don't think you can, you can't really beat that. But also join our Patreon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We'd rather people support us on Patreon because that is where you get more benefits. But if you don't want to support us on Patreon... We got the Apple Podcasts option as well. Chloe, where can people follow us on social media? Don't forget to follow us on social media. Our username is MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. We have a lot of fun on there. We post memes. We post clips of the show. Um, I post unhinged TikToks at 2 a.m. Uh, so come come hang out with us. It's It's a ball. 
Great job today, Chloe, as always. So nice to have you on. Um, Speaking of social media, I created a Slytherin-themed playlist that will be debuting in the weeks ahead. Oh, this week? Yeah, this week for sure. I'm really proud of it. I put a lot of thought into it, okay? He did, and I appreciate it so much. And I actually, I'll tease this as well. I know that people have been wondering because... We don't have a Gryffindor on the panel, so everyone's like, "Who's gonna, who's gonna do it?" I actually asked Chanel, um, who is a popular influencer that does Harry Potter stuff. You might have seen her as McGonagall um, on TikTok, but she has submitted songs for our Gryffindor playlist. And also, oh, if you are looking for, if you want a song on the Gryffindor playlist and you're a proud Gryffindor, please DM us, and I will include it. Oh, great idea. And great idea reaching out to Chanel as well. I saw those DMs. I got very excited. I was like, oh, <laughs> clever. Oh, good to know that you're looking up on uh, what I'm doing. From time to time, <laughs> I take a little take a little peek. A little peek. How much Bruce is in your playlist? Uh, just one song, actually. Ooh. Just one Bruce Springsteen song. Wow, yep. shocking. I was impressed by his restraint. I don't want to force him on people. <laughs> Look, either you love a genius or you don't. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Micah. I'm Laura. And I'm Chloe. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.